are rethinking where their story is going and how they can take it in a better direction. Yes, nearly everyone will eventually return to work, but workers themselves have begun redefining the job and rebalancing it with life. This is Wolf Moon, and you're listening to KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM in Portland and 91.7 FM on the coast in Nehalem, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach, streaming worldwide at xray.fm. The Public News Service Daily Newscast, January the 29th, 2024. I'm Mike Clifford. The rise of artificial intelligence is raising alarm bells for election officials all across the country. We get more from Eric Tiganoff. Before the New Hampshire primary, a robocall imitating President Joe Biden called voters and told them not to vote. It's seen as a potential preview of what voters could be in for as the 2024 general election approaches. Rachel Ori is the senior associate director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Elections Project. She says while incidences like the one in New Hampshire might be isolated, AI could have other consequences. Our bigger concern is what's known as a liar's dividend, that even when there are instances of generative AI being used, to target voters with false information, they feed into this bigger risk that the presence of false information makes voters trust any information less. Ori says the past few years have seen a near constant assault on accurate voting information, which has made it challenging for good information to reach voters. Oregon's Republican and Democratic primary elections are on May 21st. Meantime, Senator James Lankford, who is facing blowback from within his party for working on a bipartisan border security package, defended the bill on Sunday, saying the Republican colleagues who have criticized the measure are misunderstanding it. That for the Washington Post. Lankford has been the GOP's lead negotiator on the bipartisan deal, which would tie funding for Ukraine to border policy changes pushed by Republicans. Though senators have not yet released the text of the bill, President Biden has praised the general framework of the deal, but former President Trump has opposed the package. Next, Ross Brown reports in a Daily Yonder New Mexico News Collection collaboration in rural New Mexico, wraparound social services are reducing recidivism. Like many states, New Mexico lacks behavioral care for people behind bars. But half the state's counties are now using wraparound social services to reduce their chances of a relapse into criminal behavior. The RISE program was launched to address the lack of services to help people turn their lives around after spending time in county jails or detention centers. RISE, which stands for Reach, Intervene, Support, and Engage, provides transitional housing, therapeutic services, and intensive case management. Lisa Daniel, who leads the program in Sierra County, says folks in jail or just released need comprehensive support. If the client's basic needs are not met, then we can't work on those behavioral health or substance abuse issues because they're too worried about what they're going to eat, where they're going to sleep, their families, all of that. When the RISE program began in Sierra County in 2019, the recidivism rate was above 90%. Daniel estimates it's around 75% now. This is Public News Service. Tribes are restoring native species to their habitats in Washington State 
We get the details from this Yes Media Washington News Service Connection collaboration. The Confederated Tribes of Colville in eastern Washington have reintroduced a variety of species on indigenous land over the past few decades. Rico Moore wrote about these efforts for Yes Magazine and says the trial's wildlife department manager, Richard Whitney, has been an integral part of the projects. He's a very competent biologist and uses the skills he learned in his advanced degrees in wildlife biology in hand with his ancestral traditions and stories to bring back these species and really restore a community. The, the tribes have led other successful reintroduction campaigns, starting with elk in the 1970s. And there is good news for fishing crews and marine conservationists. Large fishing grounds are reopening while others are receiving new protections. Some 4,500 miles of ocean fishing grounds off Southern California are now open to recreational and commercial fishing for bottom-dwelling species. And 428 miles of coral and sponge habitat are closed. Jeff Shester with the nonprofit Oceana says his organization has spent years mapping the seafloor, discovering coral beds he says are right out of a Dr. Seuss book. These areas have some of the richest gardens of underwater deep sea corals and sponges anywhere. And so we wanted to make sure that these areas had special protection so that no bottom contact fishing can damage some of these really sensitive redwoods of the deep sea. I'm Suzanne Potter. Deep-sea corals and sponges are a crucial part of the marine ecosystem, sheltering many species from predators and serving as a feeding area and nursery. They are among the most long-lived creatures in the ocean. Finally, from our Eric Galatis, the Bureau of Land Management has released its final Eastern Colorado Resource Management Plan, which will guide the use and management of over 658,000 acres of public lands for decades to come. Conservation geographer Allison Galinsky with Rocky Mountain Wild says the plan does a good job of increasing protections for some 300,000 currently undeveloped acres, mostly along the Arkansas River between Salida and Canyon City. By setting aside several hundred thousand acres to stay the way they are now for wildlife, for the headwaters, for the different tributaries into the Arkansas River. Galinsky says these lands support healthy ecosystems that can help species survive in a changing climate. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service. Member and listeners. Welcome to the second hour of our program. Donald Trump uh, now bragging that he brought uh, the, the efforts of his colleagues, uh, Jim Lankford, in particular the senator, the Republican senator from Oklahoma, uh, to their knees. He's, he's, he's going to kill this bill coming out of the now. We haven't even seen the bill yet. We don't know what's in it. What we do know from you know press leaks and comments by people working on it is that it is uh, pretty rigorous with regard to the border. It strengthens the border, and and uh, and and Biden's all in favor of this as well, um, at least over the short term, over the course of the next year. Uh, so, n- number one, it it provides for I think over a thousand new border patrol agents. Um, it expands the detention facilities. It increases the number of judges who can adjudicate these cases so that they can figure out who's actually, you know, a genuine refugee fleeing persecution versus who's just somebody who's looking for a better, better life, you know, which is the case in, you know, probably six billion people on the planet. Um, you know, we've, we've got rules about who we let in and who we don't, and, but you can't enforce them if you don't have enough judges. So, you know, this would provide enough judges to do that. 
Um, but but uh, so anyhow, the, the Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and, and President Biden are working this thing out. And it looks like it's, it's a pretty good piece of legislation. And it funds Ukraine and it funds Israel as well. And Donald Trump is out now saying, uh, I killed the bill. Right. He said, uh, I'll fight it all the way. A lot of the senators are trying to say to me respectfully, they're blaming it on me. And I say, that's OK. Please blame it on me, please. Now, why would Trump say that? Because he wants to be viewed as the strong guy. This is this is basically the only card that Donald Trump has to play is that he's a strong man. And once his weaknesses start showing, his support is going to start cracking because the reason people support him is that they think he's big daddy. He's the strong man who will protect them. This is what you're what you're watching here in the GOP right now. You know, with uh, little Lindsey Graham just, you know, rolling over for Trump and, and uh, you know, uh, Tim Scott. Oh, Donald, I love you so much. These are authoritarian followers. These are authoritarians, but they're not authoritarian leaders, Scott and Graham. They're authoritarian followers. They want Big Daddy, too. And that's why Trump is trying so hard to say, yeah, I'm the tough guy. By, by the way. I mentioned in the previous break how Donald Trump might be evading paying income taxes on $48 million that he claims he, he was loaned by one of his companies. Um, now Trump's lawyer, Cliff, uh, Cliff Robert, Clifford Robert, has lashed out at Barbara Jones, who was that court-appointed monitor that I mentioned, who pointed out that it looks like he's trying to do tax fraud on $48 million of the income. Trump's lawyer came out and said that she is unfairly smearing Trump with an unabashedly self-serving report. Uh, he went on to compare her to the police inspector in Le Mis. If you remember, uh, what was his name? Jean, Jean, uh, was that the good guy? Um, anyway, she, he says, uh, further oversight is unwarranted and will only unjustly enrich the monitor as she engages in some Javert like quest against the defendants. Yeah, it was Jean Javert was the, the, uh, the prosecutor in Lim is, right? Of course, as the messenger points out, the Trump organization is not accused of stealing a mere loaf of bread, but rather has been found liable for years worth of systemic financial fraud. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a silent revolution taking place in American economics. This is the headline, in fact, of Robert Reich's piece. It's published over at alternate.org. I'm guessing it started out at robertreich.com, you know, his uh, Substack newsletter. And he said, I've never seen anything like this in 50 years in politics, which is the essence of what I wrote, although I, I kind of buried the lead. It's the last paragraph in my piece today over at harbinreport.com and that I also published over on Daily Kos. And that is that Joe Biden... President Biden has taken the Democratic Party and the White House back to the economic worldview of Lyndon Johnson, Jack Kennedy, uh, Harry Truman, and Franklin Roosevelt, which is to say back to normal Adam Smith, traditional, classic, supply demand side economics and, and rejected all the supply side bogus BS that uh, Reagan came up with to justify massive tax cuts for the billionaires. And this is what Robert Reich is pointing out as well. In fact, he's, he's pointing it out in three areas. He's, he said, uh, number one, he's uh, stimulating the economy from the bottom up. 
with the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and his infrastructure package, um, he, uh, Robert Reich notes, unlike Trump, who just levied ta tariffs on Chinese imports and used it as a campaign slogan, Biden is actually investing in America's manufacturing capacity, and he actually is. And they're expanding factories all over the country, one right down the road from us here in, in Oregon, in fact. So that's trade and industrial policy. Number two is monopoly power. And Robert Reich, former Labor, Labor Secretary, Bill Clinton Labor Sec Secretary, arguably one of the true progressives in the Clinton cabinet. Robert Reich says, Biden is the first president in living memory to take on big monopolies. He notes four big beef packers now control 80% of the market. Domestic air travel is dominated by four airlines. Most Americans have no real choice of internet providers. Um, but now the FCC and the antitrust division of the Justice Department are looking into these things. Amazon, Google, Ticketmaster, Live Nation, JetBlue, Spirit, all that stuff. And then number three, Robert Reich points out, is labor. Biden is the most pro-union president, uh, Reich says, I've ever seen. I would say he's the most pro-union president since Franklin Roosevelt. And arguably the most pro-union president in history, except that Franklin Roosevelt actually got the Department of Labor created. He got the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, passed. Um, but Biden is the first sitting president to walk a picket line. He's, he's the first president really since Lyndon Johnson and Jack Kennedy to really embrace labor. You know, both, both uh, uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, having bought into neoliberal Reaganism to a large extent, kind of kept labor at, at arm's length. You know, everybody was wondering all these years, why didn't either one of them ever, you know, overturn Roe v, or excuse me, overturn the, uh, uh, the Taft-Hartley and uh, end the so-called right to work for less. Why, did, why didn't they do that? Well, because they had this kind of weird relationship with labor because they were buying into neoliberalism and they were all gung-ho to ship jobs overseas. And, uh, but, but not Biden. Biden is coming back and saying, no, no, we're going we're gonna to change this. Meanwhile, Putin thinks he's riding high because here in the United States and a couple of other European countries, I mean, you've got Hungary with Viktor Orban, you've got right-wing movements in Italy, you've got a, a, a former fascist who's now the Italian prime minister, you've got a major right-wing movement in Sweden going on right now, you've got um, the AFD, the right-wing movement, and uh, the, the heirs to the Nazi movement are now the second largest party in Germany, and people are starting to notice and march in the streets against them. But basically, all of these right-wingers are going along with Putin with regard to Ukraine and saying, oh, just let him have Ukraine, right? As, as are the right-wingers in America. Now you've got Mike Johnson saying, yeah, yeah, to hell with those people in Ukraine. Just, just let Putin take them. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll steal a couple hundred thousand more children and sell them into slavery in, in greater Russia because uh, he's already doing that. And, you know, he'll, he'll uh, let his soldiers rape a few, you know, 100,000 more Ukrainian women because he's already doing that. They're using rape as a weapon of war. And he'll, you know, steal the resources of the country. But, you know, no big deal. Just let him get away with it. And then he'll go after Poland. So what? And you've got people in the United States saying the same thing. But this is now, this is now the official position of the Republicans in the House of Representatives as spoken by their, by their leader, MAGA Mike Johnson. Over in the Washington Post, Catherine Belton, uh, the headline, Russia projects confidence as it pursues alliances to undermine the West. And that this is uh, China and countries in the global south, uh, particularly in Africa um, and the Middle East. The BRICS 
country, the BRICS group, uh, which used to be Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, it has now expanded to include Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and Ethiopia, and of course, Russia. Uh, the Kremlin has now begun referring to itself as part of the global majority. In other words, democracy is a minority, now it's autocracy. And uh, they convened meetings in 2022 and 2023 on ways to undermine the dollar's role as the world's reserve currency, uh, the ultimate goal to replace America at the center of the world economic system. And Russia's doing everything they can to disrupt the West. The, uh, uh, the State Department has warned that Russia is going to conduct information operations further aimed at further undermining Western support for Ukraine. You can see that. All you have to do is go over to, to Ex Exter. Actually, I pronounce it like, you know, how President Xi pronounces the X, XI is how his name is spelled. And so he pronounces it Xi. So I call it Exeter, only would pronounce the X the right way, but I can't say that on the air. Um, anyway. With a host of elections taking place in Europe this year, the State Department has warned of this. Um, and it's happening. Matthew Redhead, who is the former head of uh, global strategic intelligence at HSBC and is currently a senior associate fellow at the Royal Institute, uh, Services Institute, Royal United Services Institute, a British think tank, he says, I think that hostile states like Russia and Iran and potentially China are going to start pushing the boundaries to see what reaction they'll get. It is an invitation to escalate. And Michael Kordakovsky, the exiled business executive, says Putin, of course, is trying to undermine the world order because this is, for him, the only strategy to survive. It looks from the outside like the U.S. is losing the Third World War. And then uh, General Richard Behrens, the former commander of British, uh, the Joint Forces Command, the, the sort of Britain's equivalent of the Joint Chiefs, he said, in terms of latent military power and economic strength, it is absolutely ridiculous that the West is being held hostage by something as relatively puny as Russia. Putin believes that if he's stubborn enough for long enough, we, the feeble West, will walk away. And he could be right. And that won't just be shameful. It will be an act of strategic self-harm. Well, it won't be self-harm because Putin is driving this process with his, uh, with his troll farms in St. Petersburg. And all these people on social media pretending to be Americans, and particularly pre pretending to be lefties or righties, and saying, oh, just, you know, just abandon Ukraine. Let Putin have what he wants. And for Putin, this is a matter of political survival. If he loses in Ukraine, he may well lose his life. That's what happens to dictators who don't win wars. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Joe Manchin has fired a warning shot. I'll tell you about that on the other side of the break, and I'll pick up your calls. Stay, stay tuned. And welcome back. Brian, Olympia, Washington. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Uh, yeah. Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I heard you say how uh, you don't understand why people uh, don't think that Biden would get immunity as well as Trump. But you know that MAGA Trump humpers think that uh, Biden never even won the election. It was Trump that won the election. So Biden wouldn't get immunity. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah. The, lo the logic yeah. is convoluted, but uh, consistent, I suppose. Right. 
Um, I'd also like to mention that uh, uh, you know how you say that there aren't enough progressive radio shows out there or TV shows. Um, my cousin Michael in Chicago has a, a radio program, uh, used to be a radio program, now he's a YouTube program. But um, Michael James in Chicago, Live at the Heartland, I believe his show is called. Hmm. I don't You're know. Live I from the heart. I don't. I don't know anything about him. Sorry. Oh well, it, I'd love it if you would look into him. Anyway, uh, Michael James in Chicago, uh, live from the heartland. Okay, we'll do. Thanks, Brian. Jerry in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Well, um, I noticed Tom when uh, someone calls in with a uh, let's call it a alternative view of uh, Ukraine. Uh, you cut them off rather quickly or you uh you label them a, a tanky or you or you call them a putin apologist yep but the guy that was on earlier you talked for a long time about his website and his, the 80s is given to ukraine also i mean uh what are you going to allow someone to come on a guest or even a caller and offer an alternative view a, a, a more accurate view of uh what's going on over there so the stuff you and the democratic party and the uh the Congress and all those guys, the neocons, put out about you. Because I'm not willing to, to uh, Jerry, I'm, I'm not willing to promote Putin's point of view on my program. Putin's point of view. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's it. See you later, Bill in uh, Pulaski, Tennessee. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I talked to you. Well, I talked to Congressman Connor last week, but. I, uh, I've had something on my mind for quite a while concerning Trump. Mm -hmm. You were talking about all the different crimes he's committed, and and there's one that has been on my mind since January 6th is why, well, uh, first off, I guess CNN is probably the only commercial TV program I watch anymore. I mean, I just can't hardly stand the rest of them. And... Uh, What's your point, but Bill? But they had uh, one of the Oath Keepers or uh, Proud Boys on shortly after the January 6th deal. Mm -hmm. And he said they were they were there to do business, you know. They were going to they were going to kill Nancy Pelosi and yeah. you know hang Pence and the whole bunch. Yeah, it's fairly clear. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you don't bring a gallows and, if you don't intend to and use I it. I can't figure out why the justice department hasn't put out a uh, a charge of attempted murder against Trump and the whole cabal of everybody that went into the, you know, into the uh, congressional building. I'm with you, Bill. I think and they they could have thrown the book at these guys much harder than they did, and and I think they didn't because, uh, frankly, in my opinion, Merrick Garland is a wimp. But you know, uh, what can I say? Bill, thank you for the call. It's 22 minutes past the hour. We'll be back. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. the capital switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. You know, one of the grand questions that political scientists have been scratching their heads over for years in America is, why do right-wing billionaires fund anti-black history 
movements? Why are they why are they pouring money into these people? Why are they funding anti-trans movements? I mean, what does this have to do with being a billionaire? Well, it turns out it has a lot to do with it. And here's why. Almost 30 million Americans lack health insurance. 37 million of us live in dire poverty. One in five of us are illiterate. A quarter of Americans suffer from a diagnosable mental illness and can't get treatment. 316 people are shot every day in America. 44% of us carry student debt. And the billionaires don't want to pay income taxes to deal with any of these problems of society. That's the real issue. If they can get us fighting with each other over black history or over trans people or kids, they win. Then we're not talking about taxing them, raising their taxes to where they should be. There's a whole rant about this over at HartmanReport.com that you can read and see all the stats and all the hot links. Check it out. Twenty-four minutes past the hour, and uh, Joe Manchin. <laughs> this, this guy, uh, I, I'm telling you, he's 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 a strange cat, Joe Manchin. He he really is. He's. Uh, you know, just a classic corrupt West Virginia politician kept a, a coal-fired power plant open because it was burning the dirtiest possible coal that was only being supplied by Joe Manchin's family's coal mine or coal operation. And I mean, you know, it's just like this is this guy is so corrupt, and now he, but he. He goes on CNN and he says, yeah, I can see, absolutely see myself as president. He's, he's doing this listening tour traveling around America with the, you know, the millions of dollars that no labels got from, from uh, Harlan Crow, apparently. I mean, I mean, who knows, actually. But uh, He says, the White House staff is dominated by a group of far, far left liberals. Yeah, Joe. I don't know. Would Joe Manchin pull more votes away from Donald Trump or Nikki Haley, or would he pull more votes away from Joe Biden? I don't really know. So, anyhow. All right, let's pick up your calls here. Carol in Coeur Idaho. Hey, Carol, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. A um, couple things. I know a lot about um, Joe Manchin. They don't like him in West Virginia, so that's promising. Yeah. And that's the state... Trump. But I wanted, I believe you watched The Judgment at Nuremberg, that film. Years ago. Have you seen? Well, based on um, what I found out about that, they just recently, Turner Classic Movie Channel is doing a great thing on history stuff. All kinds of uh, things having to do with uh, racism. And another thing, in, in addition to that, about the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And turns out, the it's called The Filmmakers for the Production for the prosecution it's a movie uh dated 2022 mm -hmm. and they just ran it last week and it's it is footage from uh the world war ii under the hitler regime that you've never seen hmm. and they had to put it together in order to do the prosecution so in other words the footage they use film footage actual film footage that the Nazis took themselves. They hid it in caves and everything, but they were still able to come up. They'll explain it to you in the, in the movie, but it's called Filmmakers for the Prosecution, which is the footage used to uh, prosecute all the people in um, uh, for the judgment of Nuremberg. Interesting. Why real so it's over on Turner um, Classic Movies Channel. Yeah. <laughs> Filmmakers for the Prosecution um, movie came out 2022. Excellent. Cool. 
stuff you've never seen before. I'll check it out. Carol, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the information. We'll be back with your calls. It's 27 minutes past the hour. Back with you on the other side of this break. Stay with us, please. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Speaking the truth, Donald Trump would really rather you didn't know. I'll be right back with your calls. is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance by Terry Green Sterling and Jude Joffe Block. And this is from the preface. On June 2017, or in June 2017, Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, was fated in a hotel ballroom in Scottsdale. In his 85th birthday, it, the mostly white and elderly guests sipped drinks from the cash bar and bid on the raffle price, a gun that shot pepper gel flares and rubber bullets. A birthday cake decorated with chocolate badges sat on one table. A slotted cardboard box called a wishing well perched on another. Guests were encouraged to deposit a donation into the wishing well to help pay the legal bills of the man once known as America's toughest sheriff, who would soon go on trial for criminal contempt of court. Arpaio had violated a judge's order to stop arresting unauthorized immigrants who had committed no crimes and turning them over for deportation. We attended Arpaio's birthday fundraiser as journalists researching this book. We sat with several guests at a round table with a red, white, and blue Fourth of July themed centerpiece. One woman with gray hair and blue eyes glared at us as though we couldn't be trusted. She told us she had picked corn as a teenager in the Midwest. Now, she said, unauthorized immigrants had taken those corn-picking jobs from Americans. She told us she knew also, on good authority, that unauthorized immigrants stole videos from video stores. The solution was to throw illegals out of the country, which is why she supported Joe Arpaio. Arpaio, a slightly hunched, bespeckled man dressed in a blazer and slacks, and his wife, Avad, wearing a black dress and flats, stood near the birthday cake. He whacked out the candle flames with a knife like Zorro, and then he blew them out. At the time, President Donald Trump had been in office for six months. As usual, Arpaio told the crowd he was an early, avid supporter of Trump's candidacy, thus branding himself as a crucial player in the ascendancy of the far right wing of the Republican Party and the Trump presidency. He noted, too, that both he and Trump were under attack. He'd become convinced that he and Trump were both victims of a conspiratorial liberal news media and shadowy Obama holdovers in the federal government. Arpaio singled us out, as he often did when we attended his events and press conferences, as journalists writing a hit piece book about him. I've got to be careful, he said, pointing at us. They are hoping I get convicted and go to jail so they can sell more books. He was referring to his criminal trial scheduled later that month. Should a judge find Arpaio guilty, there was a remote possibility that the former sheriff might do time in a federal prison. We had no stake in the outcome of the trial, and because Arpaio frequently labeled us as hostile journalists at his events, we were used to the audience reaction, glares mostly, and surprised, uncomfortable laughter. We understood, too, that Arpaio was manipulating his audience to paint himself as a victim of the news media. In fact, he craved media attention, and he spent most of his career seeking it out. 
Privately, he was friendly with us. Over the four years we reported this book together, and for several years before that, in our individual capacity as Phoenix-based journalists, Arpaio granted us interviews at a number of his place, of places, in his home, in his office, in his 10th city jail, before and after press conferences, in, in airports and on airplanes, at a film festival, at election night parties, and throughout the 2016 Republican National Convention. People often asked us how we'd gotten so much access to such a well-known polarizing figure in American politics. The answer was simple. We asked for interviews and we showed up at events. Our goal was to understand Arpaio's motivations and include his perspective. We wanted to tell his side of the story in connection with the central narrative in this book, his immigration crackdowns as Maricopa, Maricopa County Sheriff. We also sought his reactions to the Latino-led movement that was determined to bring him down. Arpaio was eager to share his talking points. We understood he did not always tell us the truth. We confronted him with his inconsistencies. We also confronted him with the misery and terror he's, he'd caused immigrant families and American citizens of Latino descent. His agency had engaged in sy systemic racial profiling and had enabled the deportation of tens of thousands of immigrants, many permanently. When asked about this, he shifted the blame to the immigrants themselves for being in this country without papers. This book is not a biography of Joe Arpaio. Instead, it is a story of the human consequences of his relentless immigration enforcement in Maricopa County. It tells the story of two movements on opposite sides of the immigration divide. It is about a coalition of Maricopa County residents, many of them Americans of Mexican descent or born in Mexico, who rose up against Arpaio. They include Lydia Guzman, Carlos Garcia, Alfredo Gutierrez, Danny Ortega, Mary Rose Wilcox, and Sal Reza. It's also about Arpaio himself, along with his political allies, Russell Pierce and Andrew Thomas, his deputies and staffers, and loyal supporters like Catherine Kober and, and Barb Heller, who felt that the United States was threatened by unauthorized immigrants and were comforted by the sheriff's crackdowns. As the bitter immigration divide pioneered in Arizona spreads, and as the country grapples with discriminatory policing against communities of color, this book is about what Arizona can teach the rest of the nation. The book, Driving While Brown by Sterling and Jaffe Block. Hey, if you like the rants that I open the show with every day, they're typically published over at hartmanreport.com. Check it out. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out.
Welcome back. 35 minutes past the hour. And uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. Let's pick up your calls here. Tom in Akron, Ohio. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I want to report some good news. Joe Biden is doing an awesome job. His administration is putting together a summit called Food is Medicine. And they're going with the HHS and the Department of Agriculture, Instant Cart, Rockefeller Foundation and Feeding America and some bipartisan uh, Congress critters, and they're talking about getting food to Americans. Wow. Now, that doesn't sound, like, complicated, but I'm amazed. It's such a good project. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have food in your belly, what can you do? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, and they're talking about getting food to people, using it as medicine, uh, and then they, they're good. They feel better, you know. It's And it saves money in the long run. But if you Google Biden food is medicine, it'll come up. But I just saw it, and it was like crystal clear to me. This is a good guy, and he's surrounded himself with good people. I think you're right. I, I really do. And I've, I've met Joe Biden, and I, I mean, not that I know him well or anything, but uh, Louise and I both spoke with him uh, at, at some length. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think he's, and this was back when he was vice president, but I, I think he's absolutely brilliant. And I'm, 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 I think he's doing a fine job, actually. So, Tom, thank you for the call. You know, everybody's like, oh, well, he's too old or what? Yeah, come on. Larry in uh, Coos Bay, Oregon. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a prediction for what's how the RNC is going to get rid of Trump. And it, it all hinges on what happens on Wednesday when Ergon defines the penalty for mm-hmm. the fraud case yeah. in New York. Yeah. Well, we know it's $250 million at least, and it might be more. At the same time, on Wednesday, all candidates have to fire, file their um, financial disclosures as far as contributions and uh, how much money they spend on what. Oh, interesting. And that's going to be... That's Wednesday of this week. That's Wednesday this week, the 31st. Wow. And what's going to end up looking, or what you got, which, if anybody reports it and, again, looks at it critically, uh, most of Trump's campaign contributions are going for legal fees. Yeah. And eventually someone's going to say, I can't do this anymore. It's a losing proposition. But here's what's going to go down you, almost immediately after that. We've already seen a couple of Republicans start questioning uh, Trump's viability as far as electability is concerned. Also, his... Um, uh, troubles, not just legally, but also being a sexual predator, things like that. Well, if there's a little bit more of an outcry, and I'm sure Mitch McConnell's going to try to orchestrate this as well, what's going to end up happening is Trump will eventually say, or w- when he can't be elected, he'll say, there's something wrong physically, medically, I have to go into the hospital, eventually he'll have to drop out. And then at that point, it might be, well, they have good hospitals in Dubai. They have good hospitals in the United Arab Emirates. Wouldn't surprise me. Well, again, I mean, that's the off-ramp. And that's what they're looking for right now, an off-ramp, whether it's the Supreme Court, which I doubt, or it's going to be something, again, for me, his off-ramp, as far as dignity or, you know, being able to bow gracefully, it's going to be, I have a medical issue, I can't perform, 
that's it, I'm done. Right. Because, uh, and whether it's a force out somehow, bribery, maybe they have the PP tapes, I don't know. But, you know, something like that might happen. The other thing, because I have to go through myself, um, KBBR in Coos Bay dropped your program and Stephanie Mills' program between um, 6 and 12 about three or four weeks ago. Very upset. I called up. They uh, didn't give me an explanation for why they dropped your programming. Probably going to be rating scenarios, but more importantly, they just put... Uh, music like oldies music on yeah. and no one listens to it not right now anyway yeah i i can't i can't speak to individual in, you know individual programming decisions made by radio stations we on a, on a regular basis we're either gaining or losing stations i mean it's just that that's the business oh yeah um so no no, know, no i understand I, i'm, I'm that. sorry to hear that you know it was a good station and we were pleased to have them but you know life goes on larry i gotta move along but it's, thank you for the call i i i share your uh, belief that the rnc is going to try and get rid of trump i just don't know how they're going to do it james in spokane hey james what's on your mind today james <laughs> Going once, yeah, hello. going twice. I'm right here. Oh, you're there. On, okay. Tom. Yeah, you're on the air, James. What's up? Thank you. I was getting ready for a doctor's appointment. But anyway, I certainly got a couple minutes to talk to my favorite man in the room. Thank you. Um, what's up? You remember, I know you know this phrase. I don't hear it enough recently, though. But uh, justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah. And it is that simple. And it is that pure and true, you know? <laughs> So therefore, to apply that cliche uh, to or old phrase, Starbucks Starbucks got a contract. I'm, well, they got a union, still fighting to get a contract, still delayed in court. Right, Tom, two tier system or not? None of us get justice this way. This delay, they're tying up the courts at great expense. You're talking about the Starbucks situation. Yeah, you know, courts generally, uh -huh. the system generally. Okay. You know. Um, the war on drugs, it's the most un undemocratic and unconstitutional thing going on for 100 years. They use drugs as a weapon to imprison, to ruin, for political gain. Our children, you know, it's a rough world to have children in, Tom. You know, I wouldn't recommend children anywhere in this world today. But um, what do you think about this justice delay is just to deny? Do you, do you agree? I mean, it's... Yeah, there is it's, no a, it's a saying that goes back to the 17th, 17th century, I believe, and... And uh, yeah, it's it, you know there's there's some truth to it on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't think you want a system like you have in Iran or Saudi Arabia, where you go from being charged with a crime to being beheaded in two weeks. You know, um, <laughs> you do want to have a system where you can have appeals and things. But but you know the the, the, the downside of that is you end up with people like Donald Trump who game the system. Any delays that enrich or to the benefit of anyone with power or prestige or money should be available to the common man, to the lowest of the low. I agree, but they're not, because you know, you're right. We have a two-tiered system, and if you can afford justice, you get a very different kind of justice than if you can't afford justice, which should not be. And there's there have been attempts to, to fix that, you know, with public defenders and things like that, but it's still very much the To case. go to prison wholesale for mental illness, keep putting our children, warehousing them in prisons for using substances other than alcohol. Yeah. We are a neurotic, substandard, alcoholic nation, Tom, and it's probably world. But well, I think I think we could we could fix an awful lot of these things if Republicans would just get out of the way. But they, you know, for what it's going on two years now, they haven't allowed any legislation to pass the House of Representatives. 
basically other than naming post offices. So, you know, yeah, we've got some problems. I agree. James, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Charles in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, Tom. Happy Monday to you, sir. Thank you. Back uh, at you. You know, um, uh, thank you. About seven or eight months ago, I called you to let you know that uh, the nonprofit that I was working for, I was in the management office, and I told you uh, there was a stack of MAGA hats there, and I was kind of surprised and repulsed and uh, never brought it to anybody's attention, but I asked you, uh, what should I do? Should I say something? And you kindly said, well, if you value your position, uh, no, you know, don't say anything. Well, long story, long story short, they did me the favor, Tom. And uh, now um, I have to say, when we talk about age, ageism and, you know, Biden and everything, I'm not that old. However, I'm uh, in my late 60s, and after uh, many years, I got a position where I was hired with 20-somethings, uh, and, and my bosses might be 32 or 33, a very uh, fair, intellectual, uh, you know, woman. And uh, every day, Tom, I have the attitude of gratitude, and I knock on wood, and I'm very thankful uh, that, you know, ageism is, is alive and well, even for, you know, people in their late 50s or 60s. So anyway, to get to my point, sir, <laughs> you know, we have a, a right-wing radio guy in uh, the Portland market, and uh, the question was put to the listeners, uh, what's going to be different in 100 years? And this guy, and I won't say his name, but you know who he is, said that Trump's face will be on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and, 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 and again, I'm not going to say this cat, cat's name, but I thought, okay, you got to be kidding, you know? Yeah. No, he was dead serious. Yeah. And and I, I, I wanted to ask it's called him, talking to the you know, how, much do, how much do your handlers pay you you know, to say this rubbish. Yeah. And then, of course, I wanted to ask you if you've heard latest J.D. Vance uh, comments about Trump being, um, you know, more than able to uh, become the next president. I, I just think he's eviscerating himself, Tom. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big social. Yeah. What did, yeah, what did Vance I say? I missed, I missed that one, Charles. Well, he just says, you know, Trump has all the mental co competency, uh, you know, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Yeah to become our next president. But, you know, I'm not a social media guy. I check things here and there, but I think the tide has turned, Tom. I do, too. I, I don't think this guy's... Yep, I'm, I'm, we're in a complete agreement. Anyway, lastly, I tell everybody about Free Speech TV. So okay. I'm your greatest uh, advocate and fan, okay? Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a great television network. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate the call. Uh, we'll be right back. It's 46 minutes past the hour. Stay with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be right back with more of your calls in just a moment. 46 minutes past the hour is the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the rest of us. And welcome back. Eric in LaConnor, Washington. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, long-time listener. Thank you so much for your eloquence and promoting the general welfare over the many years. I've been a long-time listener at KSER 90.7 in Everett, and I had a couple of 
well, ideas I wanted to run by you, uh, questions, if you will. One, uh, as you know, America was the first country to recognize the independent nation of Israel, and we've had an embassy there in Tel Aviv since 1949, and then Trump moved it in 2018 into Jerusalem. What are your thoughts if President Biden took this opportunity to send a message to Netanyahu, etc., to move the American embassy back to Tel Aviv? And, uh, you know, I doubt he's going to do that at this point. And, and in fact, a couple of other nations followed our lead and moved their embassies to Jerusalem. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, over the next couple of years, there's a, a, a larger movement to do that. Um, right. But we're not right. It's going to depend on whether a two-state solution actually gets enacted. Right. Because exactly. the whole don't go right. to Jerusalem thing was based on, you know, a, a quarter of Jerusalem is still contested territory. Correct. And uh, we're on record with UN Resolution 242 and 383, I believe, Mm -hmm. that talks about, yes, we aren't supportive of the two-state solution. So, okay, I'm an optimist, I guess, by by nature. But uh, another question I had was, what are your thoughts on the president uh, recreating President Carter's solar uh, panels on the White House and then bringing the well, like Vice President Gore to talk about things that happened uh, under the Democrats in terms of trying to do things for the environment uh, and your I'm not sure that they need to participate in that that kind of performance-based stuff any longer. I I, I think, you know, people get it that, you know, we've got to do some, we've got to get off the fossil fuel addiction and, uh, you know, and that this is the way to do it, so. uh, Right, but think of what if uh, Al Gore said, well, Jimmy Carter wanted to and do X, Y, and Z, and then to move, he wanted to move, as your story goes, uh, to move the post office uh, into electric vehicles right. back then. Yeah. And then, you know, the stories of the Republicans' attempts over the many years to kowtow to the fossil fuel industry, et cetera, Including et cetera. Louis DeJoy blowing up the, the U.S. Postal Service, yeah. electrifying their fleet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is and, this is the Republican agenda is to do whatever the fossil fuel billionaires want because the fossil fuel billionaires own the GOP. It's real simple. Absolutely. And lastly, um, what do you think if President Biden and other Democrats started using Governor Morris more as their speechwriter than they do as your eloquence over the many years? It's like, why can't they talk about things like civic virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, why can't they mention things like, hey, hand out a penny to folks in the audience, say penny for your thoughts. What does that e pluribus unum mean? Yeah. You know, of or from many, we're one, and talk about unifying. And every issue could be then pivoted back to one of the six goals stated so eloquently in yeah. the preamble. To Governor the Morris is one of the one of the founders who is, uh, you know, not given the kind of credit he deserves. If you read Absolutely. James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, he's all over yes. them and and saying some of the most absolutely uh, amazing and eloquent things, particularly his indictment of slavery. But, you know, it, it goes way beyond that. So, yeah, I'm with you, Eric. Eric, thank you for the listening uh, on KSDR and thanks for the call. We'll be right back. It's uh, 10 minutes before the hour.
help support progressive radio. If you're listening to us on a commercial station, call their advertisers and let them know you're listening. If you're listening to us on Pacifica, one of our many nonprofit stations, please support them when they do their fundraising drives. Thanks for supporting Progressive Talk Radio and tag your it. When I was a little kid, my grandmother had a piano and I loved to play it. I, 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 I was incompetent, <laughs> but, but I was figuring out all kinds of stuff. And then I kind of got away from it and, you know, went to school and things got busy and just lost track of it. Well, now there's this fascinating new study out of the University of, of Geneva, Switzerland, that is making me think maybe I should go back and learn the piano. Uh, it, what they found was that they, they, they took a group of 132 healthy uh, older adults, uh, retired, 62 to 78 years old. Half of them learned the piano. Half of them took music classes uh, without learning the piano. And what they found was that those who learned the piano actually had uh, the, the strongest increase in their memory, in their, in, their, in their mental competence, their mental faculties. Those who took the music classes also, also did well, but the, learning the piano was a huge step. So uh, check it out. There's a whole long rant about this over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Eight minutes before the hour, picking up your calls here, John in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I need to pick your brain. Um, you mentioned the thing about Putin and his multimedia attack on the United States, and uh, you know, with you know, good, bad, whatever, however. You, I like the way you explained it. How do we filter it? How, I need to get your opinion on. How do we filter this? This is a direct attack on the United States. This is trying to uh, form people's opinions. Uh, to me, I see it as uh, history repeating itself. Adolf Hitler did the same thing uh, before we got into With World the German War II. American we had like enough, yeah, he funded yeah, it big time. That. And he yeah, was also so Hitler was also paying a bunch of American politicians. Rachel Maddow documents that brilliantly in her uh, last book. Yeah, so basically we're re, we're repeating history again. So, but how do we filter this? How do be, and we're in a multimedia age. How I need to get your opinion on how we should filter this attack by Putin uh, that's basically undermining our freedoms and our liberties. I'm not sure what you mean by filter. And and when you say this attack, I, I don't know specifically what you're talking about. Are you talking about Mike Johnson blocking the legislation coming out of the Senate, or are you talking about the the, the troll farms, all the all the Putinistas that you find on on Twitter and Facebook and that kind of thing? I mean, what what specifically do you mean, John? Yeah, yeah, all the Putinistas and whatever. I mean, yeah, that. I mean, how how I do think you? Putin is at war with the United States. I think he has been. Uh, really, since the since the Obama administration, since since Obama called him out, you know, Hillary tried to reach out to him, and then you know what was his response in 2014 was to you know seize Crimea to invade Ukraine, and the Donbass and and all that. So I I think that he's been at war with us ever since. I think the the first major act of that war was Putin getting Donald Trump elected president. He there's no way yeah. Trump would have been president if the Internet Research Agency if Putin's uh, troll farms had not taken information from all, Paul Manafort inside uh, internal polling information, top secret RNC polling information about which people in which states needed to be contacted and you know massaged as it were, and then they used that to reach out to over 20 million specific Americans with over 120 million impressions just on Facebook, and 
sure enough, those were the people in those swing states that, you know, I mean, you know, Trump won the won the Electoral College by about 70,000 votes. And I think mm -hmm. virtually all of them you can attribute to, to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, uh, I mean, what's wrong with just saying that? That's all I'm asking you to do is, you know, how do we how do we start filtering? How do we respond, I right. guess, to this attack? Well, I'm, I am I am hopeful that we will start seeing the Biden administration and the intelligence services within the Biden administration start talking more about how Mike Johnson and Donald Trump are basically dancing to the tune of Vladimir Putin. And, and, you know, and what we know about conversations in the Kremlin that might help that. Although I realize we lost most of our spies in the Kremlin during the Trump administration because Trump burned them. But, uh, you know, that would be the starting point for me. John, thank you for the call. Mayor in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Mayor, what's on your mind today? Hey there, Tom. I wanted to um, just bring up something I heard on the Stephanie, or my boyfriend actually heard on the Stephanie Miller show this morning, mm -hmm. which was um, to work at putting this kind of chatter out there to make MAGA a domestic terrorist group. I mean, they fit the bill, right? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, the problem is there is no specific MAGA out there. I mean, it's a slogan that Trump has adopted, but just like there's no Antifa. But his you know? followers. Yeah. You know, his followers, a lot of them come from other groups that are designated as terrorists, like the Proud Boys. And, right. You know, they're... Um, but it would be an interesting idea, and I thought, you know, it, it, they kind of meet the criteria in a lot of ways. Right. The, the problem is identifying the they, right? I, I mean, if you're going to go after the Proud Boys, they've got membership roles. If you're going to go after the three percenters, they've got people who've sworn, you know, allegiance to them and taken their oath. If you go after yeah. MAGA, you know, you, what, are you going to find some, some guy in his 70s wearing a red hat? I mean, I you know. You know, I, 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 I get it that they're, that they're, uh, you know what they're doing is antithetical to American values, um, and 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 that they're you know and that Trump is openly encouraging stochastic terrorism, particularly by celebrating the guy who went after Paul Pelosi with a hammer in his uh, in his uh, rallies. Now he's he gets people to applaud that. Um, but whether you could call, uh, you know, it, I think it's a nice line, you know, for for a show, but I I, I I don't see the specifics of how it would play out. Mayor, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Dave Nyworth on the other side of the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Is corporate ethics an oxymoron? Do you have to be a jerk to be a successful CEO? Is exploitation the only path to profit? The good news is that many companies, big and small, in the food economy are blazing a different path through Wall Street's jungle of greed, demonstrating that money and morality can be compatible. Texas supermarket chain HEB, for example, has drawn an intense loyal customer base by, one, investing in good wages and benefits for employees, two, showing up in such emergencies as pandemics, hurricanes, freezes, to give essential supplies and hands-on help. And three, being an involved and supportive neighbor to the hundreds of unique communities it serves. Also, Maine Grains is relocalizing the business of milling grain by working with local farmers who had been abandoned by global grain marketers. They're producing flowers from heritage grains, boosting the local economy in the process. Then there's Bob's Red Mill, which also mills its products from diverse natural grains, and it's 100% employee-owned. 
These are part of a rising business alternative to the selfish profiteering ethic of Fortune 500 titans. Called certified B corporations, they definitely exist to make a profit, but they're equally focused on having a positive social impact, prioritizing fair wages, environmental protections, and healthy communities as core elements of their missions, even making those goals legal requirements of their corporate charter. This is Jim Hightower saying Ben and & Jerry's and New Belgium Brewery are just a couple more of some 3,800 other businesses, 800 other businesses now organized as B Corps. Though not pretending to be perfect, they're at least striving to be more than money grubbers, instead trying to contribute to the common good. For more information, go to bcorporation.net. You're listening to KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM and in Halem, Wheeler, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Radio is yours. Hello, X-Ray listeners, and welcome again to Jazz in Portland. I'm Thomas Smith, here with Tom Skelly. Hey, Thomas. Here are some events for the week of January 29th. Monday, January 29th at Mississippi Pizza, 3552 North Mississippi Avenue, the Michael Raynor Quartet with George Colligan, 7 to 9 p.m. Tuesday, January 30th at Nicoletta's Table, 333 South State Street, Suite M, Lake Oswego. Tom Grant on piano and vocals, 6 to 8 p.m. At Integrity Brewing, 6500 South Virginia Avenue, Perry Thorsell Trio, 7 to 9.30 p.m. Wednesday, January 31st at Wilfs, 800 Northwest 6th Avenue at Union Station, Ronstein Jazz Vocal Showcase for Paula Byrne with Kieran Raphael and Liam Hathaway, 7 to 9.30 p.m. At the Joe Barn Rotisserie, 715 Northwest 23rd Avenue, Brian Allen Quartet featuring Greg Goble, 7 to 10 p.m. Thursday, February 1st, at the Jack London Review, 529 Southwest 4th Avenue, the Mel Brown B3 Organ Group, 8 p.m. Friday, February 2nd, at Mississippi Studios, 3939 North Mississippi Avenue, Jazz is Dead, Blue Note Records, 85th Anniversary, Two shows, 6 and 9.30 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd, at Studio One Theaters, 3945 Southeast Powell Boulevard, Shelley Rudolph, Swank Soul, with Dan Gilday and Joe Bag, 7 p.m. Sunday, February 4th, at Studio One Theaters, the Billy Edson Band, a jazzy brunch, 12 to 3 p.m. At Clyde's Prime Rib, 5474 Northeast Sandy, Ron Steen's Sunday Jam, 8 to 10.30 p.m. Stay tuned for more info on jazz in Portland and streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Thanks for listening. Enjoy Portland music. On the Heavy Metal Sewing Circle radio show, we take a broad definition of riff-based genre music, from the helter-skelter hard rock of the 1960s to the latest Scandinavian death metal. Commercial rock stations programmed by corporate algorithms would have you believe that all-time classic artists like Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Iron Maiden only wrote three or four songs worth remembering, and they've been playing those same songs over and over at the same time every day for decades. We believe those artists' entire catalogs are worth exploring, and leave no stone unturned in our quest to share the best heavy music of the last 60 years with listeners like you. Great music is great music, whether it's by bands that the industry embraced or more obscure groups who didn't have the right managers or bribed the right people. 
Join us Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight as we explore the finest curated collection of chronological rock and metal music, or choose your own time to explore our rich episode archive on xray.fm. The Heavy Metal Sewing Circle. See you next Wednesday. X-Ray FM is supported by Slingshot Lounge. Located in southeast Portland on the corner of 56th and Foster, Slingshot Lounge offers an expansive game room, scratch cocktails, and a craft kitchen with a full menu until 2 a.m. Happy hour available weekdays from 3 to 7, and brunch weekends from noon to 4. Slingshot Lounge, decentralizing Portland since 2007. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day Carmelita Torres led the bath riots at the El Paso Juarez border. Mexican workers traveled daily across the Santa Fe Bridge from Juarez, Mexico, into El Paso, Texas, for work. As a condition of entry, workers were required to strip naked and be sprayed with a toxic mixture of chemicals. U.S. health officials insisted they were trying to stop the spread of typhus through this type of delousing campaign. However, they were just as motivated by racist typecasting of Mexicans as dirty. David Dorado Romo, author of Ringside to a Revolution, tells the story of 17-year-old Carmelita Torres. Amid rumors that health workers secretly photographed and then distributed photos of the naked women as they were being sprayed, Carmelita crossed into El Paso every day where she worked as a maid. But on this day, instead of stripping down, she refused fumigation and convinced the other women to demonstrate with her against this humiliating daily procedure. Within an hour, she and 200 other women had blocked all traffic coming into El Paso. Newspaper reports claimed several thousand protesters by the end of the day. The women marched to the disinfection camp, hoping to convince those undergoing disinfection to join them. When health officials tried to disperse the crowd, they were met with rocks and bottles. The women then laid down on the trolley tracks to stop the delivery of more workers and wrestled with motormen for control of the cars. The riots lasted for three days, but the spraying of Mexican workers with DDT and other toxic chemicals continued for more than 40 years. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Support for X-Ray FM comes from North Coast Pinball, Nahalem's Little Pinball Sanctuary, located on Highway 101 next to North Coast Mudworks. North Coast Pinball offers monthly tournaments and a selection of games from the 1970s to the present. Learn more at northcoastpinball.com. System of modern finance. The book Cokeland by Christopher Lettered. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome to the third hour of our program. On the line with us is Dave Nyworth, the investigative journalist, staff writer over at Daily Kos, the author of numerous books, his latest, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. Uh, D. Nyworth, N-E-I-W-E-R-T.blogspot.com as well, in addition to Daily Kos. Um, and uh, David Nywert, N-E-I-W-E-R-T, at uh, Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. Dave, welcome back to the program. Um, you, you write uh, in this uh, great piece your, for your Substack uh, newsletter, davidnywert.substack.com, 
the headline is Idaho's traditional Republicans realizing their new far-right transplant overlords are radicals. You mentioned that you have some some uh, affiliation with or background in Idaho, uh, which is the state next door to us here in Oregon. Tell us about that. Yeah, I know. Uh -oh. I grew up in southern Idaho, went to University of Idaho, um, still have a lot of family back there. And yeah, my early years in the 70s and 80s writing about politics were mostly spent in Idaho. So I, I know a lot about the, the deep, deep background there, including, of course, the presence of far-right extremists in the state. Right. So. Wasn't there a, a moment when there was the beginning of kind of a movement to take over Idaho? Is is that is that sort of what you're documenting here? The the, the consequences of that, and and did that was there actually a turning point moment there? My recollection was it was in the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah, I don't know that there is an initial an actual turning point other than uh, so yeah. When I started out in newspaper work, I was working in the Idaho Panhandle about 30 miles north of Hayden Lake, which became the center of far-right organizing in, in the West and really in many ways the United States mm. um, because of the presence of the Aryan Nations compound there, which was, mm. and they had this vision of turning Idaho and the, the Pacific Northwest in general into uh, an all-white homeland. And that was, that was why they moved their neo-Nazi church from Southern California to uh, Hayden Lake in in the mid 1970s, and by the late 1970s, we were, you know, seeing a lot of their activity, of course, um, and uh, and that's yeah. I was the editor of the the little paper in Sandpoint, Idaho, at the time. But it's uh, cool. Oh, 21 years old. So yeah. So so what you know the I, I my sense of the the gist of your article here. Um, you say, you know, they made a deal with the devil, one that uh, would eventually turn on them, too, and destroy everything they stood for. Gradually, you're talking about the, the regular old-fashioned Republicans in Idaho. Uh, gradually, you write, it seems that is finally beginning to happen, uh, this, this faction yeah. that's hijacked the party. Tell us about that. Well, so, you know, Richard Butler, the head of the Aryan Nations, had this idea of making Northwest into a white homeland. but. He got taken down. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center basically sued them out of existence in 2000 and put their compound out of business. But what was actually happening at about the same time was that the image that they had created for the state nationally of being an all white kind of place. Uh, wound up attracting large numbers of uh, people fleeing Southern California and elsewhere uh, in a kind of white flight um, to Idaho that really began in the late 90s and uh, started accelerating in the, t in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, and then by, you know, and then in the past decade, we have seen 
you know, political operatives who moved to Idaho from California, really taking over the Republican state party apparatus uh, piece by piece. So there wasn't really a watershed moment. It's been very gradual. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, but it's finally come to a head recently um, that, you know, mainstream, trust me, mainstream conservatives, have, should have nothing to do with these guys because they're the opposite of what we think of as genuinely conservative. They're extremist radicals. They want to tear down the country and they want to tear down our system of democracy and everything else. And, um, you know, the, the unfortunately, it's taken them a long time to wake up because, of course, they've taken these groups and these operatives, uh, you know, into their own organization and now basically cede a control to them. Um, And it did kind of come to a head very recently when um, the Idaho Freedom Foundation, which is one of the is one of the leading exponents of this sort of uh, takeover, uh, hired a well-known white nationalist named Dave Riley who moved to Idaho in late 2020 uh, and uh, immediately started running for the the local school board in Post Falls. And, uh, you know, the more we've dug into Riley's background, the the worse it gets, the worse it looks, uh, because he was one of the uh, originators of the idea of having a tiki torch parade at Charlottesville. He was present at Charlottesville. We've got photos of him standing just short distance away from James Shields, the man who um, drove the Challenger, you know, or drove the Dodge Charger. Higher. Yeah, and you're right, and killed, yeah, named 15 other people, I think, yeah. at Charlottesville. And, um, and he's done, you know, he works pretty hard to try to cover his tracks in Idaho, but, you know, these, uh, these, tip, these bits of evidence keep cropping up, including, you know, his his uh, eager participation in Nick Fuentes' America First organization, which is a flagrantly white nationalist, anti-Semitic outfit. Right. Not to mention that Riley himself uh, posts all kinds of anti-Semitic junk on Twitter and elsewhere yeah. and is constantly expressing anti-Semitic. And- I'm reminded of how hard it was for German um, uh, progressives and even German conservatives in, by 1934 to do anything right. about or dislodge uh, Adolf Hitler. Right. Um, the same thing, in, you know, with the traditional conservatives in in Italy. If you didn't get on board with Mussolini, you were toast. Even if you were a major right. industrialist, um, are these are these guys? You know, is it? Is it going to be as hard for the traditional Republican Party to to kind of go back to its, oh, we're just here for the billionaires and the tax cuts rather than we're also here for the white nationalists and the haters and the right. the, the militia guys and, you know, the, the Civil War people and all that kind of crazy stuff? Um, you know, is the GOP going to be able to, 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 to become the GOP again in Idaho or is it lost? And, and if it's lost, what does that I mean? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I think it's really hard to unwind the um, the way that the the you know authoritarianism innate in these uh, far right movements uh, 
from from these from you know this basic sentiments of your normal conservatives in Idaho. I think a lot of them find the authoritarianism uh, to be appealing, um, especially the way it you know they uh, when, when we're talking about Donald Trump. Um, but um, yeah, you know I, I think that they're they're realizing that these guys are radicals but the, you know and they are starting to try to organize them i think that there's a decent chance that there will be a backlash in the vote in idaho this year but um i'm an optimist about this stuff anyway yeah, yeah. Uh, uh so you know be, if there be, is a backlash well, I'm, I'm rooting for the good guys but yeah uh, no i get it if there is a backlash I'm also in idaho, accustomed to losing <laughs> right if there is a backlash in idaho is it going to be the result of abortion is that is that what's driving most of the backlash or, or are think, people just freaked out yeah, that, nazism the, there is so there are a couple of things one of them is yeah the the abortion law another is the anti-transgender uh legislation that they're mm. proposing is um incredibly invasive and I think uh, really runs counter to, you know, I mean, as, as conservative as Idaho has been, I would say that it's over, you know, it's overarching ethos over the years that I lived there and um, have known people there is, you know, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm conservative, but it's live and let live, you know, you're sure. welcome to your own opinion and whatever, but uh, yeah. inspecting yeah, genitals is, is not small government. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I get it. I get it. And, and then finally, they, they have a piece of legislation that's circulating now that would actually remove the uh, domestic terrorist designation or de domestic terrorism designation for uh, you know, people who right wing extremists who engage in domestic terrorism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, of course, really crazy because the, we had an actual, you know, have a serious history of actual domestic terrorism emanating from northern Idaho. And, you mm -hmm. know, people yeah. shouldn't have forgotten the 1984 rampage of the order. Yeah. You know, those guys robbed about 24 banks. Yeah. Uh, assassinated a radio talk show host, committed murders in Idaho. Yeah, Alan Berg. Uh, yeah. I, I'm very familiar with it. Uh, we're out of time here, Dave. I, I, David and I were, uh, his newsletter is called The Spy Hop, S-P-Y-H-O-P. Just go over to uh, substack.com and just plug in Spy Hop or David and I were, and it'll pop right up. You should subscribe. It's free. It's great. David, thank you so much for dropping by. Thanks for having me, Tom. This My pleasure. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back at 17 minutes past the hour, back with more of the news of the day and your calls after this. Be sure to check out Dave's newsletter. It's really great. And uh, welcome back. Oops. Come on, you. There we go. All righty. Kevin in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to point out that uh, the Prime Minister of Italy, she's a fascist, but she's kind of like a moderate fascist. Exactly. And one, of the first things, <laughs> one of the first things she did was call Zelensky after her election, uh, and she supports uh, sending arms to Ukraine and all that. So she's okay, thank you uh, for, basically for correcting that. She, she rode the anti-immigrant wave in, right? Um, but 
but not the pro-Putin. Right. The anti-immigrant piece of it is the is the foundation of most of the big right-wing movements in Europe. In fact, it's it's amazing, right. and and Putin knows that. That's why he tried to shovel immigrants into uh, Finland, and uh, you know when they were talking about joining NATO. And I'm wondering if Putin's little fingers are behind all the immigrants showing up on the southern border. I mean, he's got. A, a troll army that's very competent in Spanish. You know, how many of these people are being driven from south, you know, from, from south of the border into the United States, you know, by Putin, specifically to destabilize right. American politics and, and make it easier for Donald Trump to get elected. And, and he started the first wave of immigrants in Europe with uh, the war in Syria. That's correct. Creating all refugees. That's absolutely right. When he bombed the crap out of Aleppo and Damascus, that, that was your, and, and well, of course, you know, we we arguably started the first wave with our invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. But, yeah, all of the mm -hmm. above, all of the above. Kevin, excellent points all. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call and for pointing that out and for, for you know, correcting me on uh, what her name is not Mille. That that's the Giorgia Maloney. Maloney. That's right. Mille is the guy in Argentina and he's having his own problems. Kevin, thank you. Right. Thank you very much. Jim in uh, Pioneer, Ohio. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I've been thinking about um, Israeli strategy in their war on Gaza. I was thinking really hard. I could smell the rubber burning and everything. But um, it seems Geneva Convention says for airstrikes, they have to warn the people in the area. And they send out mass emails and texts before, you know, give them at least an hour's notice. And i got to ask, in what world does Hamas not intercept these messages? and know where they got to get out, and they got at least an hour to do it. Right. That's not going to kill any terrorists. No. It appears to me the, strategy, the real strategy is to flatten Gaza and make it easier to drive the Palestinians out. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, there are certainly people in Netanyahu's cabinet who are openly advocating that. Um, Netanyahu has not gone that far, but to, to reject a two-state solution is halfway there, you know, or it's a piece of it. Um, I, you know, I, I just think it's it's a it's an absolute tragedy that that uh, Israel now has a man, a criminal, or, a, or an accused criminal as their prime minister who is uh, you know uh, killing thousands and thousands of people on a regular basis in order to stay in power. Um, you know, this they're using this as an excuse. Oh, we warned them ahead of time. We're so humane, right. and they're not going to get terrorists with that strategy. Well, that's that's yeah, people. yeah, that's that's a difficult one. On the one hand, they're being criticized for not offering enough warnings, and on the other hand, there is the dynamic that you yourself point out there, Jim. Well, um, the convention requires it. They have to. Yeah, I, I get that, um, Jim. Thank you for the call. I would not want to be. Uh, running the Israeli army right now, I'll tell you. It's 21 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. Back in 2010 when Viktor Orban took over the Fidesz party in Hungary, uh, that party was sort of like the Republican party. It was just a conventional conservative European political party. And he has turned it into a neo-fascist powerhouse 
Um, he they, he pushed through the he altered the nation's constitution to push through what we would call gerrymandering and voter suppression, so that his party will always win. He campaigned on building a wall. Build a wall was literally one of his campaign slogans, and he did build a wall across the southern border of Hungary to to keep out Syrian refugees who were fleeing the the violence when Russia was bombing that country. Um, his other two campaign slogans were, and I quote, "Restore Christian purity." and make Hungary great again. Seriously, back in 2010, six years before Trump, there's an amazing backstory about how Viktor Orban is being cloned, essentially, in the GOP. You can find the article over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Twenty-three minutes past the hour, welcome back. And uh, the piece that I published over at Wisdom School uh, on the 21st, last, last week, and then published this morning over at uh, hunterandafarmersworld.com, a, a slightly modified version of it, is titled Neuro Linguistic Programming, NLP Cracking the Modal Code. And what it has to do with is how we understand and store data in our brains. And, and we do it through things called modalities. Now, the modalities are how we experience the world, you know, vision, hearing, feeling, or kinesthesia. Uh, smell and taste, and also our our sense of balance. But the vision, seeing, uh, or seeing, hearing, and feeling are the primary ones: visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. And we store data this way. These are these are called representational systems because this is how we know the world. We we represent it through our senses. And so the you know, for example, uh, you bring up a memory of something that happened yesterday. And, you know, just any old thing. And just, you know, ask the questions. Okay, is, in this memory, is the, are the pictures color or black and white? Are they movies or are they still? These are subsets of the modality of visual. How is the sound in, in, in this? Do I hear the voices? Do I hear it as if I'm there? Do I hear it at a distance? Is it far away? Is it tinny? Is it bassy? I mean, you know, what are the auditory dimensions? And then the kinesthetic. How do I feel about this? How did I feel at the time? Where, you know, where are those feelings located? And what we do is we, we take data in and then we convert it into basically uh, content that is made of these three things, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic, and we store it based on them. And the parts of the brain that we store it in have to do with those specific details. Here's, here's an explanation, for example. Um, when, I, when I remember things that are boring, I tend to remember them as static, that is still pictures that are in black and white with no sound. When I remember things that are exciting, I tend to remember them in color as movies with sound. So if I take something, if I take a memory of something that was boring and just intentionally fill in the color in that picture, and add some sound to it, suddenly it starts feeling exciting. Uh, you know, now, the, you know, <laughs> that may or may not be useful, but there are, there are you know, pe people take feelings, uh, you know, experiences that they have negative emotions attached to, perhaps unnecessarily, you know, a feeling of embarrassment or something, you know, it's uh, the way that the waiter treated you at the restaurant day before yesterday, that kind of thing. And so, you know, we have memories of these that kind of bother us. Well, if you take those memories and just like strip all the color out of them or play the music backwards or, or 
put music over them or draw bunny ears on people or whatever. If you alter the, the modalities and submodalities of those memories, you actually alter the meaning of them. And in the process, they get stored in a different part of the brain. Now, the brain will resist this if it's not the best thing for you. That's the other cool thing about this. This is kind of grounded in hypnosis. And, and generally speaking, you know, hip, people, are, people will only allow hip, a hypnotic suggestion that deep down inside they, they believe will either be benign or will be to their benefit. So anyhow, it's the, it's the first class on this. I'm gonna be on Saturday for, for uh, subscribers to the newsletters for hunterdefarmersworld.com uh, and wisdomschool.com. I'm gonna be doing a, a one hour Zoom class on this as well. Um, so just FYI, I, I find it fascinating stuff, how the brain works. I'll be back with your calls on the other side of the break. It's 27 minutes past the hour, stay with us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week. We're right here. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Capitalism and the Death Drive by Byung-Chul Han. It's translated from the German, in fact. It was originally published in Germany. And this is from chapter, I think it's four. It's titled Inside the Digital Panopticon. Today, everything is smart. Soon, we shall live in smart cities where everything, yes, everything without exception, will be interconnected. Not only humans, but also things. We will receive emails not only from friends, but also from household appliances, domestic animals, and the food in our fridge. All this will be made possible by the Internet of Things. In the, small, in the smart city, we will all walk around with Google Glasses. Everywhere and at every moment, we will be provided with useful information without having to ask for it. We will all be guided to the restaurant, to the bar, to the concert hall. The data glasses will also take decisions for us. In combination with a dating app, they'll even bring us more success and efficiency in matters of love and sex. Data glasses will scan our visual field for useful information. We will all become happy hunters of information, and in the process, we will adopt the perspective of the hunter. Areas of our visual field that are not likely to contain information will be ignored, contemplative lingering, dwelling on things, which is the recipe for happiness, will be completely replaced by the hunt for information. Human perception will finally achieve total efficiency, no longer distracted by objects that deserve little attention and presumably hold little information. The human eye itself will become an efficient search engine. The Internet of Things represents the completion of the Transparency Society. The Transparency Society has become indistinguishable from a society of total surveillance. Everything around us observes and surveys us, tracking what we do and do not do. The fridge, for instance, will know your eating habits, the network's toothbrush, the details of your dental hygiene regime. These things will actively, rec actively record all aspects of our lives. In the digital control society, data glasses will be surveillance cameras and smartphones will be bugs. Today, every click of a mouse is recorded. Every step we take can be reconstructed. 
We leave, leave digital traces everywhere. Our digital habitus is completely captured online. The total recording of life will replace all trust with information and control. Trust makes it possible to entertain relations with other people in the absence of complete knowledge about them. Because digital networks make it, make it so easy to obtain information, trust becomes less and less important as a social practice. It gives way to control. There is therefore a structural affinity between the transparency society and the control society. Where information is easy to obtain, the social system is transformed from one based on trust to one based on control and transparency. The place of Big Brother is taken by big data. The constant and comprehensive recording of daily life fully realizes the transparency society. It resembles a digital panopticon. The idea of the panopticon dates back to the British philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who in the 18th century designed a prison that facilitated the total surveillance of all the inmates. The prison cells are arranged in a circle around a watchtower, which provides total vision to the warden, a kind of big brother avant la, la tour. In order to discipline the inmates, they're isolated from each other and they're not allowed to speak to each other. The inhabitants of the digital panopticon, by contrast, communicate ceaselessly and expose themselves voluntarily. The digital control society makes great use of freedom this sort of society is only possible thanks to voluntary self-disclosure and self-exposure. In the digital control society, pornographic self-presentation and panoptic control coincide. The control society is fully achieved when its inhabitants communicate not because of compulsion from outside, but because of an inner, an inner need. That is, where the fear of having to forsake one private and intimate sphere gives way to the need shamelessly to expose it where freedom and control become indistinguishable. The warden of Bentham's panopticon can only observe the inmates physically. He does not go, know what goes on inside them. He cannot read their minds. In the digital panopticon, by contrast, it's possible to access the thoughts of the inhabitants. That is what makes the digital panopticon so efficient, and, what, and it is what it makes possible the psychological control of society. Today, the demand for more transparency is issued in the name of freedom of information, or democracy. In truth, transparency is an ideology. It is a neoliberal dispositive. It vehemently drags everything out in the open in order to transform it into information. In the context of today's immaterial mode of production, more information and communication mean greater productivity, acceleration, and growth. Secretiveness, strangeness, or alterity represent obstacles to limitless communication. They are thus removed in the name of transparency. The dispositive of transparency experts is compulsive force that tends to bring about conformity. The book Capitalism and the Death Drive by Byung Chol Han, translated from the German. From international trade policy to immigration policy to housing, we've got all kinds of topics. The wars between Republicans and Democrats, the Republican efforts to induce fascism in the United States. A great selection of opinions will be found over at heartlandreport.com.
So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free, and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Thirty-five minutes past the hour. Picking up your calls here, Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, how's Oklahoma? What's up? Hello, Tom. The sun is shining. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, it's good place been to start. Cold. Yeah, been good cold down here. Mm. Uh, listen, I just want to key into the conversation, and you you said several things since I heard what motivated me originally to call you, but this. Uh, this whole aberration of Trump, uh, I'd like to take it down to earth a little bit. Here a little while back, they legalized marijuana to some extent. Now they've got all these dispensaries all around. Now they're in Oklahoma, because it's legal for people in China to buy property, they've got a situation going on where people are... Uh, are uh, doing these illegal marijuana grows and big greenhouse operations, and they're using a lot of water. Now, the farmer can't plant um, hemp, which is a crop that ought to be used given all the stress that the environment's under and the economy. The farmer ought to be growing the hemp so we make things with fiber and seed oil, which mm -hmm. has nothing to do with marijuana. But they make it have something to do with marijuana by insinuating still, that we need to have a war on drugs and a right. war on marijuana. Right. And, and the plants look the same. Yeah. So instead of legalization, it should have been ending prohibition, rescind mm -hmm. the law that China did in the first place. China discovered the industry of hemp with rope making and paper making, and they made it illegal to, to smuggle seeds out of China, where the plant was found originally after the last ice act. Okay, so it's come a long way. Everybody knows the history of him. Jack Herrera wrote a really good book about it called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. He wrote several editions to the book, and then he, he passed away. But he did good work there. It ought to be looked at. And I don't know why Free Speech TV or your show, frankly, doesn't embrace this book and bring it to the light where people could understand and, and have some reference to a different point of view about this conspiracy against marijuana and this war on industrial hemp. I think you just petrol. did, Bob. That <laughs> was a pretty good plug. So, so your point is that we need to, we need to end the prohibition. I, I'm waiting for the Biden administration to take a, a bold step on you know, rescheduling 
uh, marijuana. I, I'm, I'm just surprised it's taken them this long, although, you know, uh, I, I'm guessing this will become an election issue. Um, we'll you know, see. Just, but. You know, yeah. Let me say one, one other thing. Biden worked against us my entire life. I'm 64. Mm-hmm. Biden is working against us the whole time he's been in there concerning the marijuana issue and the need well until he became president now now he has given two speeches or he's mentioned in two different speeches that uh, yeah. we need to reclassify marijuana he just hasn't gotten it done yeah and the reason he hadn't got it done is for the reasons you bring up like citizens united and all these people being well it's it's there. also that uh, yeah the alcohol industry is totally against it that that's that's a big piece of it you're absolutely right bob um, and they can buy politicians. But the other part of it is that it, it, the president can't do it with a stroke of, pen, of a pen. It has to be done by the regulatory agencies that came up with the designation in the first place. And I believe that... So, by the farmers. The farmers so, and the people need to do this. Yeah, well, I, I think that this comes to the FDA and, and, the, and the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. And I don't recall which one of them controls that schedule list you know the, the you know schedule one two and three uh but but one of those agencies has to do it before biden can claim uh, credit for it and that's that's the problem bob i got to move along but thank you for the call bill in sierra blanca texas hey bill what's on your mind today hi tom yeah i wanted to get your take on this recent good news you might have already talked about it earlier in the show about uh, the biden administration uh pausing all of the lng gas exports uh, to ch- countries like China. I live on a frontline community here in Sierra Blanca where they'd go under the river all the way to Porto Libertad for 3 billion cubic feet of gas a day to be exported to China. Yep. Uh, so the, so uh, uh, it, it's all over the news, as you know. I mean, yeah, this the, is a big deal. Wing is just, and if, if I could yeah, just, just, just expand on it a little bit, Bill, because I, I wrote about this in my Saturday report at HartmanReport.com, but you're right, I didn't mention it today, and I should have. This is the uh, arguably the largest carbon bomb on Earth right now. Just got paused. Now it hasn't been averted yet because it's paused. But but and that is the export of liquid liquefied natural gas from the United States to these LNG terminals, and and that's a big deal, especially after the Willow Project kind of let us down um, to have the Biden mm-hmm. administration say no, we're not going to expand this at least at the moment. I think, you know, and for those of us who live along the, the routes, as it were, you know, the Pacific Northwest here, it's a huge big deal. Yes, and uh, some of your listeners may not know, we already export 11 billion cubic feet a day, and there's 13 billion cubic feet a day that are being constructed that have already been approved. That This, this uh, pause doesn't even affect that. Right. We're already exporting nearly 28 billion cubic feet a day to uh, uh, European Union and uh, other countries. And by the way, the European Union says, we don't need any more gas. Don't use us for an excuse to, to get this done. Well, they're still, they're still dealing with the, the, the Nord Stream pipeline being blown right. up and you know the loss of Russian gas supplies. But but you know, by and large, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying, Bill. And you know, it's a, I think it's a great start. I I think the the Biden administration is taking climate very very seriously right now. Um, although you know, it's a bizarre political uh, environment right now in America. Bill, thanks for bringing that all up. Steve in New Boston, Michigan. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hey Tom, the uh, the GOP of yesteryear 
is now the group of phonies today. That's who they are. I and agree this with is you. you know, my... Because they're not trying to hide anything they're doing. Uh, take, for example, the bill that uh, President Biden is waiting for that will help the problems at the border, will supply Ukraine and Israel with the aid that they need. And Johnson's already said that bill's dead upon arrival to the House. These people, we're paying them to do their jobs, and all they're doing is toting themselves around to do whatever Donald Trump tells them to do. Yeah. Now, here's what I want to make a point of. Tom, two people in my family died fighting in wars to protect the Constitution, keeping their oath to the Constitution, protecting our democracy and the freedoms that we live in today. One of them was a cousin that was killed in Vietnam on the very day he should have been on a plane coming home. Now, my concerns are, if, especially for Ukraine, if they don't get this aid to be able to thwart the threats coming from Russia, the Russia's communist past history of expansion is going to go into the NATO countries. And when it does, we're going to have to put American boots on the ground. Right now, we don't have to do that. Let me tell you something. I stood over my cousin's flag-draped coffin, and the image of that day being at his funeral and seeing that is with me every day of my life. I don't think about the good times that we used to have when we would get together. I think about seeing him laying there dead. Now, all you moms and dads out there hearing my voice, remember this, because if Ukraine falls, you can count on U.S. soldiers going over to Europe, fighting and dying, and coming home in flag-draped coffins. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. And take it from somebody who's lived through it and still does to this day, you don't want to live through it either. Yeah, I'm, I, I completely agree with you, Steve. And uh, if Putin takes Ukraine, that's the beginning of World War III. China will then go after Taiwan. Putin will then go after Poland and, and at the very least, Latvia and Lithuania. Um, it's possible he's going to try and start something with Finland. Um, NATO is then going to be forced to decide whether they're going to take on Putin. And if Donald Trump is in the White House, of course, NATO will not. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll leave NATO and it'll be sabotaged and Putin will get everything he wants, which, of course, is why Putin's working so hard to get Donald Trump, you know, into the White House. It's We it, need to stop the group of phonies, vote them all out and see to it. No more of them get back in. Um, That's what we have to do. I, I am with you, Steve. And just to, just to put oh. a, 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 a punctuation mark, my my brother, I have three younger brothers. One, one's passed away, but the one who's just two years younger than me used to be a political consultant to Republican candidates in Michigan years ago. I mean, like 30, 40 years ago. And he's and he's like, you know, this Republican Party has no bears no resemblance to anything in the past. Steve, thanks for the You're call. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's uh, in just a, a few seconds. It'll be 45 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back with more of your calls in just a moment. Uh, Joshua in Kennesaw, Georgia. Hey, Joshua, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. It's good to hear from you again. Thank you. What's up? Things have really, well, changed quite a bit since we last spoke. We have the October 7th incident in Israel, which has now led to this whole another problem, conflict in the Middle East expanding. And, uh, oh, Biden's poll numbers have plummeted since then. They're coming back up. Hey, what did you say? They're coming back up as the economy oh. is, the perception of the economy improves, uh, Biden's poll numbers are improving. 
Okay. I think I think what those numbers were reflecting was the fact that the media had been covering uh, Joe uh, had been covering Donald Trump nonstop, twenty four seven, for weeks, if not months, and there had been virtually no coverage of Biden or what he's what he's doing. Um, you know, when Trump actually had accomplishments during his presidency, they were trumpeted by the media. I, I was shocked yesterday. I saw uh, 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 what is it, an Andrew Corazon, I think is his name, the the guy who was the head of Media Matters for America, and he was on, as I recall, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's show last night, and he said that um, when Trump echoed Nazis, it, and then uh, when Hillary Clinton said that there were, you know, a basket of deplorables, her deplorable statement got thirty more than thirty times more coverage in the mainstream media. Than Trump echoing Nazis, um, you would think that Trump echoing Nazis would be a bigger deal than Hillary Clinton saying that some Republicans are deplorable, but apparently not. Nope, and that is part of, that's part of the reason why we got Trump in 2016. Yep. And speaking of Trump, I know this is something that you talked about. I read your recent article on the first Trump Reich, and I was wondering. What exact path do we have forward if they win? Because even if Trump lose the Congress, where do we go from there? Oh man! If if Trump wins, wins the White House, you're asking? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I have a I am very concerned about this because uh, you know Trump and his minions, but particularly Stephen Miller, I believe. Have just come right out and said that if they get if they get power, they're gonna they're gonna come after the press. So, speaking purely for myself, Joshua, um, I am concerned that I might end up in jail or end up you know bankrupt uh, because Trump would change the libel laws and make it retroactive and then sue me for libel uh, or defamation or whatever. I you know um, this is how Viktor Orban did it in Hungary. This is how Vladimir Putin did it in Russia. Uh, Donald Trump just a couple of days ago gave a speech praising Viktor Orban at some length and, and reiterating again that if he became, becomes president, they're going to go after the media. Um, uh, what Orban and Putin have also done is anybody who speaks up against them, uh, which could be like you, Joshua, uh, if they can identify them, they go after them. I mean, there was a guy in, in Hungary who was thrown in jail just a little while ago for just putting a Facebook post that called Orban a fascist. So, uh, you know, that, that, that is fully what I expect would happen in America with a Trump presidency, particularly if Republicans got the House and the Senate. And uh, it's not going to be pretty. It's just going to be really, really, really ugly. ugly. Joshua, thanks for the call. It's 48 minutes past the hour. I'll be back with you in 60 seconds, and we'll continue picking up your phone calls. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. So back in 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt became president, we were in the depths of the Great Depression. He raised the top income tax rate on billionaires from, from 25% to 90%. The ultra-rich were screaming, and here's what he had to say. A number of my friends 
who belong in the very high upper bracket, have suggested to me on several occasions of late that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. He just took it right to them, right? Now, what came out of that was the world's largest and fastest growing and first major middle class. We can do this again. We just have to raise taxes on rich people. It's pretty straightforward. There's a whole article about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Welcome back. Picking up your calls here. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi, Tom. You know, first off, just to add to one of your earlier callers that was suggesting to declare MAGA as a terrorist group, another reason why that's challenging is because of the narrative and rhetoric, <clears throat> the double standards that is going on, the airwaves. Um, I mean, you've heard... Um, you heard these same Trumpers, they're going to declare people like Black Lives Matter terrorists where they were always peaceful and unarmed, but as far as their own MAGAs being armed and um, the insurrection of January 6th, they say, oh, no, we're not terrorists, we're patriots. Right. Just like they're using the term, they're hostages instead of prisoners. Yeah. You know, so that's why that's going to be challenging. But as far as E. Jean Carroll case goes, you know, eighty-three million three hundred thousand dollars. That's just the beginning, which I foresee a lot of accountability finally level against Donald Trump. Yeah. And then when you look at the attorney that couldn't even get it together in the courtroom, it kind of reminded me that you know Donald Trump is picking these whip these not just women but people to be a bunch of yes men and yes. Um, Yes, women, just following what he says, regardless of what the law and the Constitution is. I mean, mm -hmm. I still remember, I can't remember that female judge's name that's handling the Mar-a-Lago thing. That's a I Trump appointee. Yeah. Eileen Cannon, Luce thank Cannon. you. Yeah. Luce Cannon. You saw how she had to be reprimanded harshly by the Court of Appeals. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like... With Trump, he's above the law as far as he knows, and he's the only one giving the orders, and yeah. that has to stop. Yeah, I, I, I am with you, Michael, and I think it is, and I think that uh, he went in there thinking that he could bully the jury and bully the, uh, and, and, you know, he, so his, and he's bullying his lawyer. I mean, he's got basically a, a, a strip mall lawyer, you know, uh, yeah, Miss Abba or Haba or whatever her name is. Yeah, under Trump, we have all these vacancies filled with the most, utmost, unqualified, uneducated, and pretty much unethical people. And that yeah. is dangerous yeah. and a threat to democracy. Yeah, loose cannon point in, 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 uh, point in fact. Uh, Michael, thank you. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind today? Well, you've had a few callers. Uh, I will call them Republicans as a polite term. Uh, call in and complain because you don't let them promote their views. And I would suggest they check in with the thousands of other stations that are very highly promoted and continue to promote fascism and their right-wing limited views to make sure you only hear what they want you to hear because heavens to Betsy if they told the entire story. So go back and listen to those and maybe talk to some of your ancestors that might still be alive 
grandparents, great-grandparents, because if they're in their 80s and 90s and maybe 100, they might have some stories to tell you about how, oh, back in the old days, we thought we could just skate along too, and then all of a sudden, we were in a war. A that's world right. war. That's right. And we didn't have any choice about it. Yep. And that's going to happen again. If Putin gets Ukraine, yep. he will then take anything else he can grab, yep. and eventually he will attack NATO, and then eventually we will be at war, and all of you young people, you will be in uniform whether you like it or not. Yep. You're absolutely right, Sandra. And, uh, and, 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 it, and it'll... I hate to tell you, but they're, they're blind if they're not seeing this. I will support Ukraine to my last dime. Yeah, yeah. Because they are taking this on their own. They stood up to face this monster who thinks he can get what he wants because he's just like Trump. He, I want that. I want that. That that was mine back thirty, forty years ago. My yeah. country, the Soviet Union. Well, yeah. you know, f you because you ain't the Soviet Union anymore, and Russia is nothing compared to what we can put up. Yeah. If we have to. There you go, Sandra. Uh, well said. Thank you very much. That was that was great. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Hey, good day, Tom. Yeah, that's a good rant from uh, Sandra. Um, and I, I want to talk about President Biden's reelection campaign. And I'll begin by enthusiastically echoing you on how cool it is that um, the president is steering us away from the neoliberalism of the last 40 years um, that you describe in your Hartman report today. And, you know, he's steering us, as you say, Tom, in a direction that FDR charted 90 years ago. So that's something to celebrate. Um, you know, he stood strong. He has strong with organized labor, stronger than any president up to now. Yep. Um, the FTC's enforcing these antitrust laws. They, they blocked the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. And the next one uh, we need them to block is Kroger Albertsons, uh, which would be, you know, radically yep. monopolizing the grocery store which industry. Which is under challenge also. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, Lena Khan's doing a great job in the FTC. And then, um, equally important, as you and the previous caller uh, stated about the DOE, DOE blocking the, uh, pausing the approval process of these new LNG export terminals. You know, that's that's uh, showing true grit in taking on the climate chaos and making America a world leader in a new world, the clean energy economy. Having said all that, Tom. He's jeopardizing his reelection chances uh, by his staunch support of uh, Netanyahu. Yeah, and, I think you know, that's going to crack, but we'll see. Jeff, I, I share your concerns. Jeff, thank you. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same channel. At the meantime, in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Stay safe. And we'll catch up with you on the other side. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Our local newspapers are being merged, purged, shrunk, shut down, and looted by Wall Street profiteers. Yet, there's good news. In the towns those media vultures are torching, a phoenix is rising. Hundreds of determined locals, often led by people of color, are finding new ways to pay for and revive top-quality local journalism. 
For example, the Ferndale Enterprise moved to an old Victorian home, renting upstairs rooms to vacationers to subsidize the paper. Also, while aloof Wall Street owners have no connection to us or our towns, the scrappy new community papers are stressing their grassroots connection by moving into friendlier, more central, street-level spaces such as public libraries and community centers so that regular people can see them and have direct access to their reporters and editors. Then there's the editor of the Sahan Journal in Minneapolis, who moves his weekly editorial meeting to the offices of various grassroots groups so their members can help shape the paper's coverage. And in Marfa, Texas, the Big Ben Sentinel is literally serving the public, not only with a good weekly, but also with the Sentinel, a combo coffee shop, cozy bar, cafe, event space, and hangout for locals to meet and greet. In ways big and small, dedicated local journalists are experimenting with funding, structure, staffing, etc. to produce the news that democracy requires. Note to Wall Street vultures, these newspaper ventures aren't interested in scaling up to maximize investor profits. As they know, it was corporate cost-cutting, consolidation, and scaling that got us into today's mess of journalistic collapse. And, unlike the Wall Street model, their success is not measured simply by financial return, but also by how they do 